So this morning I thought, and perhaps this is um, just because I have not actually lived through a full Michigan winter as of yet, but I just thought as I got up and I went outside that if it's going to be chilly and there's going to be precipitation, at least the snow would be pretty to look at. Does anyone agree with me, or is it just because I haven't actually experienced the full force? Okay. All right, quick pu public opinion poll. Okay, it's, it's the 27th. We're, we're technically, we're past Thanksgiving. It means right around the corner, Christmas is coming. So, so how many people came to church today re ready for Christmas? Anybody? A couple people. Okay, you can see it's, it's starting to creep in. We have our tree in our foyer. But we are going to spend one more week as we, we look at this idea of thanksgiving. As we look at some of the examples that are given to us in Scripture, uh, we've looked at some really amazing examples of thankfulness already through this month of November. Right, we've talked about this example that Paul set. As Paul continued to give thanks even in the midst of an all-encompassing, overwhelming storm that surrounded him. We've talked about how David and the Israelites, how they were able to give freely and, and they gave with amazing thankfulness. Last week, we recounted the story of this amazingly righteous woman, Hannah, and how through the story of her life, how she was more thankful uh, to the giver of the gift than she was for the gift itself that she had received. But the truth is, when we open up our Bibles, all throughout Scripture, we can find stories of thankfulness. It's a very common theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's a theme that very much like a pendulum, it tends to, to swing both ways. Right? As we open Scripture, we can see these amazing examples of thankfulness. And then we can also find plenty of examples where people were rather unthankful, even ungrateful for the things that, that God had provided to them. We, we don't have to look very far in Scripture either, right? It, it starts right away in the garden. Picture Adam. He's a little lonely. He has this task that God has given him to go out and to, to name all the creatures, and through this task he realizes that he's alone. He wakes up from a deep sleep one day. And standing before him is his, his, his God. And God is presenting him with this amazing gift, a female to the species. The very first thing that comes out of Adam's mouth is, whoa, man. And the name sticks. Eh, dad joke. But that amazing thankfulness that Adam must have felt in that moment, it did not take very long for him to be ungrateful. It did not take very long for him to look to God and say, God, it wasn't me, it was that woman that you gave me that ate of the fruit. How about Jonah? Jonah was pretty thankful to be a prophet of the Lord. He enjoyed all the perks that went along with the being associated as a, as a man of God. But that thankful attitude, it changed a little bit as soon as he was asked to go to Nineveh. King Solomon... King Solomon, the, the great king who, who, out of his thankfulness, asked God for only one thing, give me wisdom. So thankful for the blessing that God had given him. But Solomon's story ends with him being ungrateful, with him disobeying God's commands, with marrying these, these foreign women who would lead him astray. The whole story of the Israelite people, the redeemed out of slavery. Think how thankful they are that moment that they see the, the, the sea open up before them and there's dry ground that they can escape. The, the thankfulness in them must have been just boiling over that God would provide in this way. But it did not take very long until they were wishing, ungratefully, that they were back in Egypt. Egypt. 
right, where at least their bellies would be full. They were thankful for the manna, the miracle food from heaven, but again, eventually, they tired of it, and they became ungrateful. Truthfully, the whole story of the Israelite people is the story of this pendulum that swings back and forth, this cycle between thankfulness and ungratefulness. Uh, We can look in the New Testament. In Luke, there's this story of the ten lepers that Jesus healed. He saves all ten men's lives. He heals them from this horrible disease. Nine of them, they run away, thankful for the gift they had just received. Only one of the men stayed behind that was grateful and thankful to the giver of the gift. Uh, There's one example of this pendulum that has been in the forefront of my mind, possibly more than any other lately. And that is the man that we call Judas Iscariot. And perhaps he's been in my mind a little bit because if you watch the TV series, The Chosen, season two ended on this cliffhanger where where you see Judas meet Jesus and they lock eyes and that's how the season ends. Or maybe, you know, if you did go to the theaters with us a couple weekends ago to watch the premiere of season three, you'll you'll know that Judas played a a large role in those first two episodes. But, But either way, this idea of Judas... And this, this, this thought that I had that at some point, Judas must have been thankful. Don't you think at some point Judas would have had to be thankful that Jesus chose him? That he was brought into this, this inner circle? Don't you think in his heart he must have been grateful at some point to witness the miracles that he had witnessed? But scripture tells us that evil drove him to stop being thankful, that it it drove him to betray his teacher. And scripture doesn't tell us a lot about this man, Judas, right? We're, We're never actually told the when or the how or the why that Jesus called him. One of the few things that we know from the Gospel of John is that he did serve as the group's treasurer. He held the money bag. And John implies in his gospel uh, that Judas was kind of prone to maybe skimping a little off the top for himself. Uh, But it was, again, this this pondering and this thought of Judas that led me to the scripture that we're going to examine today. this, This final example that we will have in this series of what it truly means to give thanks. What we're going to look at today is the really the part of Judas's story that we all know, that we're all familiar with. His betrayal of Jesus. Isn't it a shame that that is Judas's claim to fame? That is what he will always be remembered for as the man who betrayed his teacher for a little bit of silver. It's in Luke 22 is where we're going to be today. That's where this, this famous or infamous scene begins to play out. As I was reading Luke chapter 22, something struck me. It's that these examples of thankfulness that we have looked at so far, whether it be Paul's or David's or Hannah's, What we're going to see today is that it all pales in comparison to the thankfulness that our Lord and Savior showed as he sat down, as he prepared to to observe and to eat this Passover meal with his disciples that one faithful night. When When I read this scripture, it was an overwhelming reminder of why we don't worship Paul or David or Daniel or Hannah or Ruth or Moses or or Abraham or Adam. Right? We don't worship any of them because something greater has now come. Something that all of us in this room can truly be thankful for. When we open the 22nd chapter of Luke, what we're going to see is a picture being painted for us. 
I know it's a chapter of Luke's gospel that we're probably all already familiar with. I know that you're already familiar with the context of what is happening in Jesus' story. You know that just a few days ago, Jesus entered the city as a hero. But now as he prepares to break bread with, with those closest to him one last time, the mood has changed. Right? You know that Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, or at least his disciples believe that that's why he's in Jerusalem. Right? The law of the people at that time said that to observe the Passover feast, that it had to take place within the city walls. So conveniently, that's where Jesus and his followers find themselves. You know the true significance of this holiday? The real reason Jesus gathered them, though, at this moment, to this point, it was lost on them. Right? They were all, again, good Jewish boys. They all knew what the Passover was. They, they understood and remembered this final amazing sign that God had performed when he freed his people out of Egypt. They knew the story of how the angel of death came upon that nation. How only the homes of the Israelites were spared. And, and they were spared not because of their observance of the law or, or because of their genetics. Right? They, they were only spared if their homes, if their doorways were marked with the blood of a lamb. And, and as I say that out loud, it just reminds me, don't you love that our God, sometimes he comes to us and communicates us you know, in these gentle whispers. Right? Like he did for Elijah. But sometimes we can just read something like that and we can see that God also sometimes paints with a very thick brush and he draws bold lines that all of us should be able to see and put the dots together and understand what is happening. What we're going to see is that it would take the blood of another lamb. And the blood that would be spilled now, it was not just to spare Israel, it was to save all of humanity. Luke 22, it, it, it begins kind of like a smack in the face. As we look at the first, or the second verse, I should say, of the chapter, it alludes to what exactly is about to happen as we finish Luke's gospel. Chapter 22, verse 2 says this. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. I think it's really important and it's interesting as we get into this today that we understand that these men, that these religious leaders, that they had already decided to kill Jesus. Their, their mind was made up. It's one of the very first things that Luke wants us to understand. And while different gospel writers will record, record different parts or different details of this account, I think Luke's is the best way for us to understand the betrayal that's about to take place. Right, I know it's popular thought among many that Judas somehow convinced the authorities to go and arrest Jesus. But that's not the picture that Luke paints. Here's what it says in verses 3, three through 6. Starting in verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. I hope verse 3 maybe made you pause for a moment. 
Verse 3 says, Satan entered Judas called Iscariot. You've heard me say this before, but what in the name of spiritual warfare is happening here? We have this man, Judas, who has traveled with Christ, possibly for years, that has seen all of the miracles, that's spoken directly to Jesus, you know, looked him eye in, in the eye, face to face. This man who at this very moment is sitting just feet away from God's Son, and the devil is simply able to enter him. When I read that, I have to ask why. I have to ask how. I start to think, could the devil have entered any of them? Why not Peter? Why not Andrew? Why not James? And as I thought about this and I prayed about it, I realized Jesus already gave us the answer to that question earlier in Luke. If you want to flip back to chapter 8, you can. If not, it'll be right, right behind me on the screen. It says this in chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. It says, The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Truthfully, this isn't the point of this message, but again, it's how my brain works. Even if we've had a personal conversation, you might find that we, we start off talking about one thing, and 45 seconds later, you're trying to figure out how we started talking about something completely different. But when I say Judas was, was right there, that he was living with Jesus, that he was as close to God as in the flesh as any man had ever been, and he still falls prey. It's my nature to get confused by that, to be intrigued by that. But again, Jesus already warned us. Right? Satan did not enter any of the other men because their seed, it fell into fertile soil. And I don't know, maybe Judas's seed, maybe it fell along the path right there next to the good soil. But because of this, the, the, the devil could come along and could snatch him away. Maybe his seed, maybe it did fall upon the rocks. Right? Maybe, maybe he genuinely heard the message. Maybe he wanted to share in the joy of Jesus, but he never put down roots. So he was primed to be snatched away. And maybe his seed fell into the thorns, and because of it, it was that siren's call of, of money and power and pleasure that meant that he never developed fruit. I don't know exactly why, but Scripture does tell us, again, Satan came upon Judas. And when he did, Judas goes straight to the authorities. But again, I, I doubt that he gave testimony against Christ. I don't think he showed up with a long list, a recording of all of the potential blasphemies that they could convict him with. Judas showed up and he provided information. He was an informant. He was a snitch. He, he came and he said, here's where we're staying at. Here's how many men are traveling with us. And most importantly, here's a good time where you can come when the crowds, they won't be around. 
So Jesus is aware of this impending betrayal. But even while he's aware of it, he still makes plans for these 12 to gather together with him and celebrate the Passover. You know the story. He sends two of his disciples ahead uh, to make preparations for this very important meal. It's the same very important meal that we do remember each and every week when we do gather and we have our time of remembrance of communion. It's this really famous scene. This this scene of this dinner is is so famous, it's probably inspired one of the most well-known paintings any any of us have ever seen, The Last Supper. I'm sure for a lot of us, including me, when I close my eyes and I try to picture it, I just can't help it that, that this scene is what I see in my head. You see, but Leonardo got something wrong about his picture that he painted. And no, it's not a crazy conspiracy theory. This is not going to be any Da Vinci Code nonsense, so stay with me. Look at what it says back in in chapter 22 of verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. So literally what that says is that Jesus and his disciples, they did not sit at a formal table to eat this meal. Literally, it does mean that they reclined. That traditionally, the Passover was actually eaten in in a laying, a resting state. There would be a very short table in the room. And everyone that was sharing in the meal would, would lay on their sides, propped up by a pillow, you know, up on their elbows, truly reclining. So when when we picture Jesus at this meal, he is not sitting at the head of a formal uh, dining table, right, in some throne-like chair. He's reclining. He's resting with those closest to him. The bread and the cup, they're right there at eye level as he speaks. Verses 15 through 23 say this. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? What I hope you noticed in those few short verses, and I hope you noticed because they were highlighted on the screen, is that Jesus, in this moment, stops and gives thanks three separate times. Again, think of the swirling circumstance that was staring him down. As, as he sits, or again, as I should say, as he reclines in this upper room, as he looks around the table and he sees the faces of these men whom he has come to love, as he knows what's next, he knows what must be done, he, he knows that he will suffer, he knows that he will be broken, 
knowing full well that he is going to die. But he still stops three times, and he gives thanks. He he begins giving thanks before he passes the cup. He says to his disciples, he says, this will be the last time that I drink of this vine until the kingdom comes. And I'm thinking that if I'm sitting with him in that moment, or again, if I'm laying around at that moment, I'm probably nodding along with what he's saying. Right? I don't know when the kingdom is going to come, but, but I know that I'm reclining right next to the Messiah, so I'm going to assume it can't be too far away. So, okay, Jesus, sounds good. Soon enough, we'll all share in this cup again together. But Jesus doesn't stop after that first time he gives thanks. Right now, he takes the bread. Again, he stops, he gives thanks. And things become a bit more intense. He now says, this is my body. Take it. Eat it. Remember me. In verse 20, where it again says, likewise, that that means, again, for a third time, he stops and he gives thanks. And now this time he goes back to the cup for a second time, and he says, this cup, it represents the new covenant in my blood. Right? Not, Not the blood of the Lamb, but in my blood. This wasn't the first time that that Jesus had a teaching that sounded something like this. Uh, In fact, the last time that Jesus taught like this, uh, it caused quite a ruckus when he said something very similar uh, back in Capernaum. This is recorded in John's Gospel. Again, if you'd like to flip to John 8, you may. If not, it'll be on the screen right behind me. This is verses 48 through 58. And the words of Jesus here say this. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Does anybody know what happened immediately after Jesus said those words? If you look at John, verse 66, what it says is after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They listened to everything he had to say, and when he was done with that teaching, they said, okay, Jesus, we're done, we're out, thank you. Right, we're told the twelve stayed, that means even Judas was there, heard that difficult teaching, and he stayed. But most of the people who had come to follow Jesus at that point in Capernaum said, I'm done. I'm out. 
Right? These are the people that were there for the miracles. These are the people that were only following Jesus for the free lunches that they were hoping he was going to provide. Right? They too were the ones whose seed it fell on the path, or it fell on the rocks, or it fell into the thorns. Again, the, the word was right there. It was standing in front of them in the flesh. But when times got difficult, when the teaching all of a sudden got a little bit too hard, when it became more than just warm and fuzzy feelings, they retreated. But now Jesus goes back to this, this same analogy or this same metaphor in a much more intimate setting. He goes back and he says the same things to his disciples. He says, I am the bread of life. Again, he explains them to take this, to do this, do it in remembrance of me. And all the time, all the while, while he is explaining this, he's giving thanks. And not the way we think of it. He's not just giving thanks. Thank you for the food I'm about to eat. Thank you for the cup that I'm about to drink. He's thankful to the Father for his blood that is about to be spilled. He's thankful to the Father for his body that is about to be broken. He's right here giving thanks in the middle of a storm. A storm that he knows will lead to his suffering and it will lead to his death. Paul gave thanks during a storm. See, but unlike Paul, Christ received no promise that this storm would not end in his death. Again, here we see Jesus giving thanks freely and willingly, just like David and the Israelites did, right? There was no obligation. He was not forced to do so. But David gave thanks out of his treasure until his bank account hurt. Christ gave thanks until the life left his body. Again, Hannah, this, this amazing story we looked at last week, how she was thankful for the giver and not just the gift. But her example pales in comparison to our Lord Jesus, who was obedient and thankful to the giver, even to the point of death on a cross. Again, I know that we are familiar with the idea of Passover. But most of us, including myself, we're not Jewish. So maybe we don't understand all of the procedures and all of the rituals. Right? The Passover meal in its entirety is full of very intentional and purposeful rituals. All of these elements of the meal that are supposed to come together and they're supposed to remind everyone that is participating of their people's redemption out of Egypt. There's one particular tradition uh, that would have taken place towards the end of the meal someone would have been designated to, to stand up and ask a question. Ask a question of the host. And the question that they would ask is, why is this night different than any other night? And it's from there that the host of the meal would be responsible to, to recount that Exodus story. That story about how they were thankful that, that God had kept his promise. That God had remembered his covenant people. So again, Jesus would have been the one that would have replied to that question. So, so think of this one. When he says, take this, it is my blood. He's saying, no longer are we remembering the blood of a lamb. He says, this is a new covenant. And it will be authored by my broken body. 
When he says all of this, he's completing the Passover story in a new way, in a way that it had never been told ever before. And I am so thankful for that, above and beyond anything else in my life. That question, why is today different than any other day? Why is today worth being thankful for? Something you can get excited about. Someone, somewhere, today, for them it is the day that the blood of the Lamb will cover them for the very first time. For someone, somewhere, today, is the day of their Passover. That is, again, something you should be able to be excited about. As we think about that at this very moment, as we gather here, that there are churches all over the globe who today believers will faithfully come together and gather. As we can be inspired that there are churches all over the globe where the word is being faithfully preached. Where songs of worship are being lifted up to God. That in churches all over the world this morning, invitations are being offered. Right? In congregations that are large and congregations that are small. Congregations that meet in cathedrals and congregations that meet in people's homes. Right now, at this very minute, the Holy Spirit is urging someone to respond. Urging someone to step forward and lay themselves down and call Jesus Lord for the very first time. If you are here today and you feel that urge, if you hear that voice that is calling your name, I pray that today is going to be your day. Right? What I want to pray is that today will be your day that death has lost its sting. Let today be the day that death must pass over you because you belong to the Lamb. 